This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Garden Isle is pace-setting during this health crisis. This morning, we caught up with Kauai Mayor Derek Kawakami at the Emergency Operations Center to talk about how the nightly curfew has been working and how everybody's coping. The curfew has been fantastic for our first responders and for our health care workers. And that was the original intent is how can we lighten the load of intake going into our emergency rooms and our hospitals? Because with this coronavirus, um, every time one of our first responders has to respond, you know, they're burning through PPE that we just don't have. And so it's it seems to be working out fantastic. We have, you know, Cody Bonilla from AMR. Uh, he's engaged in our EOC every single day. And he said they've been responding to less calls. Uh, Wilcox Hospital, Jen Shahanovich, has said that emergency room visits at one point went down 40%. And so, and you know, Kauai, I mean, we're known as the island that has nothing to do after 8 o'clock anyway. So it's kind of built into um, into the island. And so we just, you know, we, we know what countries have and haven't done, and we're trying to apply best practices. It is a little scary as we look at the headlines around the world, and very sad when we see our first responders succumbing to this virus when they're out there trying to help save lives. Yeah, you know, and that's where um, I think when I say in my message that it's going to require a tremendous amount of self-discipline, self-governance and integrity from all of our community members because government just cannot be babysitters. And unbeknownst to many, you may be putting your own loved ones in harm's way if you cannot have self-discipline. And in this case, you know, discipline equals freedom. The more we can be disciplined to get through this together, the faster we'll be able to get out there and start working on getting people back to work, getting the economy recovered and so on and so forth. We did talk to a number of the county prosecutors about the situation in the prisons, and, you know, there was a discussion that we had about screening. Yeah, you know, we just have to do better screening in general. You know, the the capacity for Hawaii at the state lab was 250, uh, maxed out 500 a week. I don't know if that number has changed. You know, I'm no medical expert, and so in this type of crisis, it's it's imperative that leaders can put their faith in the experts in the subject matter. And um, so I rely a lot on Dr. Janet Berriman from the Koi District Health Office and Lauren Guest and their entire team that works behind the scenes. And, um, you know, we're dealing globally with a situation where um, we're finding out where the gaps are. And in my opinion, you know, we, we should be ready uh, with more robust testing because if this is the new norm then we got to learn from from this experience now as far as the overcrowding of the prison systems you know we're already challenged as it is with our police department being understaffed uh national guard of course coming in is a huge huge support and i'm so grateful and the beautiful thing about our national guard is it's our local native sons and daughters from Kauai to a large part. So they're going to be familiar faces. They know the local landscape, and they, they love this island. Now, um, I'm not sure if the idea of releasing um, low-risk, nonviolent offenders um, is best practices. Uh, now, when the island is on edge, and we're already going to forecasting an increase in crime, domestic violence. I know that General Hara has been working hard with his team to see if there's alternatives. And we have to think outside of the box and get creative with this situation. But if there are, say, for example, vacant dormitories because colleges have been shut down, it may be a better option to house the very low-risk, nonviolent offenders in a facility uh, such as that um, instead of just, you know, further exacerbating uh, a already com- complex situation. And, you know, the bottom line is I'm not judging. You know, I'm in no position to judge. You know, only God can judge. But um, here's here's the fact. They're, they're in prison because they broke rules. And they owe a debt to society, and they're paying that debt off. But they somehow broke some rules, 
some more severe than others. But here I am as mayor trying to get people to comply with rules. And that in and of itself is a challenge. And so I think all mayors are on pins and needles with the idea that this could be uh, coming down and further challenging our operation at home. I know you're there at the Emergency Operations Center, and my heart goes out to you folks because you've had to deal with flooded conditions, you know, in the midst of this COVID crisis. You no, know, Catherine, first and foremost, our team here on Koi is battle-tested and they're battle-ready. I mean, the morale in that EOC is very good, and that's because we have people in there that every day they know it's challenging, but they bring good energy as soon as they walk into that door. And I think first and foremost, everybody in there that's working is willing to sacrifice work day in and day out until we're out of this, myself included, because we're blessed that we actually have a job right now. There's so many people that cannot work, that have been laid off. Every single day we remind ourselves how blessed we are that we still have jobs, that we have a job to do, that right now when situations like this occur, people look to government workers to step up and understand that each and every one of us is blessed. And when there's a time of crisis, this is when government workers need to to step up and they have to understand that whatever your job is, you are there to provide a beacon of hope, to display courage. We gotta chin up, get out there, take the necessary precautions and work hard. So as far as the logistics of, you know, the social distancing and when you've got an emergency situation because of a natural disaster, and then you, you open up an emergency shelter. How are you working that through? That's a, that, that's a complex situation. We ran into very challenging times when we had the, the first rain event that flooded out Hanalei again because there were a number of non-residents and residents that were trapped in the Hanalei area. You know, we had to open up a shelter at Hanalei School, and social distancing provided a... Uh, extreme challenge for us to comply with. We learned very quickly that the next rain event, we made it clear for people to get out of the area. Do not lollygag because you're going to be trapped on this side and it's not going to be a fun experience. And so people cleared out. This one that happened more recently, I did not get the same reports that we did during the first flood event as far as social distancing being an extreme challenge as it was. But um, I, I'm going to go back and recap with the folks that were working the shelter to see if it was still a challenge. But now when we're saying everybody should wear a face mask, everybody should be wearing a face mask when they're interacting with other people. That should help increase social distancing in some of those challenging times as well. And then how are you managing your stress? I hear to Coconut Wireless that you're uh, working on your dance skills with TikTok. You know, Catherine, I, you never know how you're going to respond to a situation like this until you're actually in it i think every mayor in the back of their mind they think okay what kind of disaster is going to uh, am i going to inherit and i have to tell you I, I don't think that this emotion that i'm feeling is stress at all i found that i actually operate better under adversarial conditions uh things sort of slow down for me i think a little clearer i um um I would say this is more something that I think um, God had blessed me with to, to, to be a part of. And I really think that this is uh, the sort of calling that I was built for. Um, I think the hardest part for me to, to really grasp is there's the tremendous amount of hardship that this pandemic is causing. And every time we put a protective barrier to protect our island, it's causing pain in other places. That, that I think, is the most challenging thing for me to grapple with is uh, just the amount of people that can't even get through the unemployment system that haven't had their checks sent out. And um, there's a lot of things that are within my control and some things that are, that are uh, a little more challenging. Um, but the state's got to figure out a solution, uh, they need to think outside of the box and get that issue resolved immediately. Well, I think uh, uh, folks do appreciate that you have tried to lighten things up when they need. That's more for my wife and daughter's oh. entertainment. That's, <laughs> I think, what they uh, do to lighten their mood up because I get stressed out. 
I, if you want to talk about stressful situations, try and have a 16-year-old daughter teach you how to do a 15-second dance routine, and you just <laughs> can't get it. And she starts turning into daddy and telling, you know, telling daddy, hey, I need you to focus. Right? <laughs> We're going to break this up into pieces that you can, uh, you know, but put your phone down and, you know, focus. You can do this. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what are they putting me through? Thank you for, for what you do there, Mayor, and uh, let's just uh, keep in touch. Thank you so much, Catherine, and to everybody out there. You know, we love you. I know that um, this is challenging times, but we're all right alongside of you. We're all going to emerge from this stronger. We're going to learn from this. Have faith. Have faith, and we will do this. That was Kauai Mayor Derek Kawakami talking to us this morning from the Emergency Operations Center there on the Garden Isle. We now look to a more global view of COVID-19 as the coronavirus spreads to the furthest corner of Polynesia. And in an added twist, could our pets now be susceptible to this virus? Here's the BBC with how COVID-19 is affecting lives on the other side of the globe. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Wednesday, the 8th of April. I'm Henry Bello with the latest on the pandemic. China lifts a 10-week lockdown in the city of Wuhan, where life is slowly returning to normal. The British Prime Minister spends another night in intensive care and why are vets encouraging people to keep their cats inside? The Chinese city of Wuhan, where the coronavirus pandemic started, has re-established links with the outside world after two and a half months of strict lockdown. BBC journalist Xin Yan Yu is from the city and says there's a huge sense of relief. There are people just buying fresh vegetables from the market and people seeing the lights up from on the banks of the Yangtze and the highways all opening up. And the companies, several, um, many of them have already applied for the return to work permits. People are just happy to go back to work. Only two new infections have been counted in Wuhan during the past fortnight. And while questions remain about the veracity of that statistic, our correspondent John Sudworth says the downward trend is clear. After its initial faltering steps, China eventually hit this virus hard, shutting its whole economy down. And while there is some doubt about the detail of the official figures, it's clear the government believes the trend is going in the right direction. And while the outbreak has slowed in China, New York has recorded its highest single-day increase in deaths at 731. The state alone is on the cusp of recording more fatalities than the entirety of Italy. The mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, says the pandemic is devastating families and the city's economy. The number is staggering. The initial projection is at least half a million New Yorkers are either already out of work or soon will be. That is the kind of level of unemployment and economic distress. The only comparison you can make for that is the Great Depression, which scares me to death to even say that. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has spent another night in the intensive care unit of a London hospital. His condition has stabilised and he can breathe without the assistance of a ventilator. There is a shortage of these machines in the United Kingdom and despite the growing death rate in America, President Trump says the US will soon be ready to export hundreds of the machines. We'll have them for the future and we'll also be able to help other countries who are desperate for ventilators. More than 10,000 people have died in France and the health minister Oliver Varane says the outbreak is still getting worse. New infections have risen by 5%, prompting the authorities in Paris to ban all outdoor exercise between 10 in the morning and 7 in the evening. One Parisian, Charlotte Bouboul, says the lockdown is affecting people's mental health but is necessary. We ask ourselves why these measures weren't taken earlier. For me, I think it's quite late that they've decided to take these draconian measures. Police in Israel have started raiding homes to enforce social distancing rules. At the same time, food is being delivered to a large ultra-Orthodox town that's been sealed off due to concerns the virus is spreading faster than in other parts of the country. Avogal Beer is a volunteer paramedic working in the community and she says many people are scared. The Orthodox community wants to know more and wants to help with the disease. It's complicated because they don't have any internet or television. Uruguay is letting a medical plane evacuate dozens of Australians and New Zealanders from a cruise ship where some 60% of passengers and crew have tested positive for coronavirus. The Greg Mortimer has been anchored off Uruguay since late March.
Five cases of COVID-19 have now been recorded in one of the most remote places on Earth, Easter Island, which is more than 3,000 kilometres off the coast of Chile. The island's mayor, Patera Edmonds Payeo, says his people are vulnerable. If the disease were out in, in town, we have no place to run to because this, is, this island is the only island. There's nobody near us, so we're alone in the middle of the ocean. And veterinary scientists are recommending cat owners keep their pets indoors during the coronavirus lockdown, citing evidence that humans can pass on the virus to some animals. Victoria Gill has more. The concern about COVID-19 spreading to and from other animals has built slowly. There were a handful of reports of domestic dogs and a pet cat being infected. And most recently, a tiger at a New York zoo apparently caught the virus from its keeper. But while scientists say there's growing evidence that humans can pass the disease to other animals, particularly cats, there's no evidence that those animals can transmit it to us. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. As this ongoing crisis shutters small businesses for the foreseeable future, restaurants have been among the hardest hit. While many have adapted to takeout-only models to stay afloat, some simply cannot afford to keep their doors open as business grinds to a virtual halt. HPR reporter Ryan Finnerty spoke with News Director Bill Dorman about the bleak future for many of Hawaii's eateries. There are around 85,000 food service employees in Hawaii, which works out to be around 13% of all workers in the state. So this is a very significant chunk of the economy and of the workforce. And also of note is that food service jobs make up a greater share of Hawaii's workforce than in other states primarily due to the importance of tourism in our economy. So we have more restaurant workers than other states do as a share of our labor force. Makes sense. And, yeah, and since restaurants have been ordered to close, that makes Hawaii's economy more vulnerable to this type of protracted shutdown that we're currently experiencing. And it might seem like ancient history, but it's been less than a month since Governor Ige and county mayors have issued stay-at-home orders that shuttered most businesses. Restaurants have really started feeling that. University of Hawaii economist Peter Falecki analyzed data from the uh, website Open Table, which does restaurant reservations and, and restaurant traffic. And he found that traffic to Honolulu restaurants was down by 100% compared to March of last year, which makes sense because those businesses have been closed to dining in. Um, so coffee shops and restaurants, as most people probably know, have been allowed to stay open for takeout only. Balecki took a look at that and he says that it's a lifeline for some businesses and it will favor establishments that already focused on takeaway meals as their primary business uh, model, uh, businesses whose customers are already conditioned for that type of system. Um, but it will be harder for restaurants that are focused on sit-in dining to pivot. They kind of have to adjust their business model and their, their workflow to meet that, uh, and their customers are not necessarily mentally primed to think about those restaurants or those establishments in that way. Um, but he said another issue is that the takeout-only model will not just affect businesses, it will also affect workers at those businesses in unequal ways. So if you are working in the kitchen, then you might be able to continue to uh, cook the meals if people keep ordering and they stop by and pick it up. Uh, at the same time, the waiters, uh, the staff that was serving the meals, they are not needed in this setting. So their jobs are at the greater risk. And Bill, his predictions seem to be bearing out. Uh, I've spoken with several business owners in the restaurant industry, and uh, the ones whose business is was already uh, takeaway or you know uh, kind of not dining in, they seem to be doing okay. One owner in particular, uh, he operates a bakery in Kaimuki. Uh, they never had on-site dining. It was always same-day sales straight to customers. 
all they did was uh, stand up an online ordering system for their customers so people don't have to come in and line up and their businesses continued with only a little bit of disruption. But when we look at traditional dine-in restaurants, they're really feeling the squeeze of the social distancing measures. Um, I talked with Natalie too. Her family owns and operates a Thai food restaurant in Kaimuki. Their business is down by as much as 90% with only their really loyal customers coming in for takeout. And I spoke with her right before rent was due on their commercial space on the restaurant. And she told me they weren't going to make it, but they planned to stay open anyway. I would just pay whatever I have. If we close, there will be zero or even minus because we still have to pay the still rent. Pay the rent. Right? Yeah, but if we, if we keep open, at least we have some... Something coming. Coming, in. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. it's better than nothing. And as we've been hearing, Bill, this doesn't really show any signs of, of ending anytime soon. We know it's going to be at least until the end of April, another month. So a lot of these restaurant businesses are really in trouble already. And Ryan, that really stretches, as you point out, in terms of the restaurant business going to folks like landlords because the, the interconnection of the economy, the woman having trouble paying rent to the landlord, the landlord then has trouble meeting whatever revenue projections he or she is assuming, and it's a uh, it's a continuing cycle like that. Yeah, I think it is worth noting landlords kind of get a bad rap uh, often in, in discourse, and especially uh, when it comes to issues like this, the policy focus tends to be on bans or postponements on evictions, pauses on mortgages, forgiveness and that kind of thing. But everybody owes it to somebody, right? Um, there's somebody's paying a mortgage most of the time um, if it's a commercial property. And uh, so that means somebody's losing money if it's not getting paid. And it's either going to be the bank uh, that has to eat it or perhaps the federal government has to cover the cost. So it, it, there is really a, a trickle down uh, through this. And a lot of these businesses are not necessarily going to be able to get help from uh, the CARES Act, this federal uh, rescue package that was passed. Um, I was speaking with another University of Hawaii economist earlier today, Sumner LaCroix, and he pointed out that there are a lot of conditions on the aid money, these kind of these low or no interest loans that are available to businesses, um, things like keeping your employees on the payroll uh, for a certain amount of time. And, and he pointed out that some of those conditions are not really going to be conducive for the restaurant industry in particular, um, especially if your main expense is rent, because the way that law is written, it's uh, providing financial assistance for payroll for your, to pay your mm-hmm. employees. But if your main uh, if your main expense as a business is your rent, uh, then you may not really be able to take full advantage of that, and it may make more sense, as he pointed out, to furlough or lay off your employees and close down or go down to a skeleton crew, and and then you're not keeping people employed. So right. it's a really a, a very difficult problem for this particular industry. And, and as with a lot of this, and I know Yuhira, the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization, continues to do research into this, but it is a moving target. There's talk already in terms of another package uh, on the federal level designed to help small business because this moves very quickly. And for a lot of small businesses, they don't have a lot of breathing room on this, such as restaurants. Yeah, and that's what Sumner LaCroix, who I spoke with earlier, pointed out is that he thinks, uh, and as do many other economists, that there will need to be a second rescue package uh, at some point in the future. There were uh, federal government, Congress allocated $350 billion for these Hmm. small business loans, and it's on a first-come, first-served basis. So we won't really know for a couple of weeks how far that's going to get us. But, yeah, it's very likely that as this pandemic continues to roll through the country and affect different regions and different cities at different rates and at different points of time, that there may need to be uh, another substantial amount of money set aside by Congress to help businesses and individuals get through this. We'll keep an eye on that and keep an eye on how that affects Hawaii as well. Ryan Fairney joining us from a socially distant, safe place. Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Nico's Pier 38, offering takeout, breakfast, and lunch, with curbside pickup available for lunch from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Fish market open daily. Menu at nicospier38.com. We at HPR hope you'll join us in thanking our underwriters for their continued support of our mission to educate, inform, connect, and entertain our community before, during, and after this crisis. This critical backing from the business community helps us bring you the information you need in these uncertain times. A genuine mahalo to the more than 200 underwriters who make this station stronger. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a collection reflecting the cultural diversity of the islands and a commitment to presenting art and exhibitions that inspire. More at honolulumuseum.org. Businesses are starting to report problems with insurance companies during the COVID shutdown. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair on the line this morning. Hi there. Hello, Catherine. Good morning. Good morning. So, oh, it's so disheartening to think, oh, you're paying your insurance premiums and, you know, when you need it, uh, there's no coverage. <laughs> you know, Stuart Yurton uh, reported this story. It's up on our website today, and he and I were actually talking earlier today. He's, of course, in a secure, undisclosed location, <laughs> <laughs> reporting remotely. As, uh, but uh, he and I did have a chance to talk about his story, uh, and the people that he's talked to say this is a really big deal. We're talking specifically, primarily about uh, visitor or hospitality industries that you know, have had to shut down. This is happening nationwide, but of course here in Hawaii, we're heavily dependent on the visitor industry and trying to get claims paid from their insurance companies because they've been ordered to shut down. The, Stewart got interested in the topic because it came up this week at that state house committee on COVID-19, right? There's one in the Senate, there's one in the House. And this one, Scott Psyche, the House Speaker, asked Colin Hayashida, the insurance commissioner for the state, Hey, what are you hearing about this? And Hayashida said he had not heard that there were any reports of successful claims, but Psyche argued, in fact, he hoped that uh, he had heard there had been many companies denied uh, claims from their insurance company. He's worried about what kind of ripple effect that's going to have on the state, hotels in particular, and restaurants. And he wants Hayashida to see if they can help uh, with those claims. Yeah, I mean, I recall when we had the lava inundation and you had... Uh, a lot of those residents uh, suing, oh gosh, uh, I'm trying to remember now who is Lloyds of London? I can't remember now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, they'd been paying their claims and they had to really fight tooth and nail to get some payment. Well, one of the interesting things that Stewart found is he talked to someone nationally uh, who points to, actually the estimate is there may be 30 million claims because of COVID-19. The last time the nation had anywhere near that many, and it was not 30 million, it was 10 million. This was back in 2005, and it was that year that three hurricanes hit Florida. And of course, you know, you mentioned the lava. It's a very similar circumstance. Uh, but do you really, how do I explain this succinctly? Is a virus an act of God? Is there damage that is done to your facility? If your claim, your policy excludes viruses, you don't have any claim at all. There's not going to be any argument whatsoever. Uh, if you can somehow show that there was physical damage to your property, like what happened in a hurricane or a volcano, well, you know, I mean, chances are you're not going to have that kind of damage. So just to add on to what that fellow on the mainland said to Stuart, this is going to be like hurricaning hurricane hitting every single state, or in our case, also volcano flows. Yeah, well, I know, I know you've covered rail for many years, and uh, mm. I know I was introduced to the term force majeure, you know, yeah. the, the act yeah. of God, right? And we had that yeah. conversation with Hart just about, you know, well, what do the contracts say, and what's going to get covered, and what's not? Yeah, Stuart also talked to a hotel owner, Jonathan McManus. He owns the uh, Hotel Wailea over there on Maui, very nice property, and he is arguing that, in fact, insurance policies should cover what is 
in fact, a government order that it's the equivalent of a catastrophe. And uh, Stuart did check with others, hotel industry folks and restaurant folks nationwide, as you can imagine, are hiring lawyers, they're hiring PR firms, uh, they're hiring lobbyists, if they didn't already have them on the payroll, to help argue uh, their case that, in fact, this is, you know, this was not their fault. The government said shut down. Here in Hawaii, as you know, that includes a 14-day uh, quarantine for visitors, uh, also uh, locals coming back. Uh, it also includes the stay-at-home orders on Kauai. There's even a curfew in effect. Well, you know, I was thinking of the cruise industry because, remember, there were calls to shut mm. the cruise industry down. And then the, the cruise industry, at least in our neck of the woods, voluntarily said, you know, we're going to suspend operations. But uh, you know, today's headlines, you can still see there are some cruise ships out there uh, that are <laughs> looking for a place to, you know, sneak into port. <laughs> I will mention also restaurants because uh, it turns out that a group of pretty well-known chefs, Wolf King Puck, I think everybody's heard of Wolf King Puck, also Thomas Keller, if you're familiar at all with uh, fine dining, they've actually banded together to see if they can get compensation, uh, the, the same rationale that, look, the, the effect of the virus is as bad as a natural catastrophe. It's damaged my business. It's hurt my employees. I need some sort of help here. Yeah, so we'll we'll have to see then what the uh, stimulus package, the federal bailout uh, includes as they talk about, you know, helping uh, so many segments in our community. Right, and maybe a fourth stimulus package to come. We'll see. Right. All right. Thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was politics and political editor or opinion editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read the coronavirus coverage, visit civilbeat.org. This morning, Bernie Sanders announced he's suspending his presidential campaign, leaving Joe Biden as a Democrat's candidate. We talked to our political analyst, Neil Milner, yesterday afternoon about a recent study that examined the fear factor, how the uncertainty in these times could affect the election process. First of all, this is, this is really a disaster in progress, and so there are a whole lot of things that we don't know about how the uh, pandemic will affect the election and when elections will be held. But this is a study that is recently done, well done, that looked at what the impact of what turns out to be anxiety about, uh, uh, about the coronavirus, how that affects people's votes, particularly how it affects the votes in the Democratic primaries in selected places uh, in regard to, to the Sanders vote and the Biden vote. And what it showed was if you control for everything, they looked at counties that matched very closely, except some had no pandemic, no cases yet, and it wasn't much of an issue, and some already had cases. And what difference it makes, and the difference is this, that Sanders' votes get significantly depleted in places where virus has already become an issue in the counties that already become an issue all other things being equal that's that's the that's the finding and what they did was to compare his votes in 2016 votes in 2020 and it dropped significantly from what you would expect from anywhere from two to twelve percent so what they say is if you look at everything else we control for everything else the difference seems to be that people are very anxious, and when they're anxious, they move away from voting for, for Sanders, and, and we'll look at what the reasons are. So basically they're saying, who is the safer candidate? Well, that's what it turns out to be, that, the, that if you take everything else out of it, the main reason is anxiety, and the anxiety gets manifested in what they call flight from risk. Flight from risk is a term that you find in, in the literature about how people behave in financial situations where things get dicey and where things get worrisome. They tend to move away from a little bit of chance-taking and more into safe things. And what 
it appears to be is that that flight from risk is also working here and that Biden has always advertised himself as the candidate about normalcy, gradual change, and so on. And, and Sanders has been very clear that he wants bigger change. Even though Sanders has been talking about the kinds of bigger change that might appeal to people during these times, more health care, better concern with workers, it appears as if people, when they're scared, when they're worried, will move away from Sanders because of the fact that their, their anxiety drives them away from what they see as risk-taking. Right, so he he may be looked at as the risky candidate. He's the risky candidate. That's right, for, for sure. Now you have to understand that this is all, you know, this is not about how they assess the candidates per se, right? This is about looking at all of these factors, um, and no one. This is not about people saying that that's what they're doing or that they change their mind about Sanders. It's not about asking the voters. It's looking at all of this other stuff that seems to, that seems to show that they moved away from it. So it's called really the flight to safety, the flight from risk to the flight to safety. And, you know, it is such a time of upheaval with, uh, uh, for the Democratic Party because they've had, you know, just all things happen, you know, oh, from yeah. state to state from day one. Well, that's right, and it was finally getting to a point, it appears, where from the, from the standpoint of stability, it was getting to normalcy. That is, before the virus became such a big issue. That is, that the, the kind of the elites in the party and the voters began to move more toward one candidate. Sanders had very little, still a very little chance, maybe as some suggest one in a hundred chance of getting the nomination. So they were moving in that direction, and then they began to worry, first of all, about whether there would be a convention at all and how there would be one. And that's still a big issue because they, they postponed the, the July thing. But they were at least reaching a certain kind of stability, and in a sense, this flight to safety, and I'm not saying this because I have... I agree that Biden is a better candidate. That's not what I'm talking about here. But this flight to safety is essentially a cry to normalcy, as seen by the voters, that they just, under these circumstances, trust a candidate like Biden more, not because they have anything personally against Sanders, but because they're less willing to take risks under these circumstances. And we haven't you know, heard a lot from Biden. No, you haven't heard a lot from any of them. I mean, they've been... They've been talking. Uh, Biden had a, a conference, uh, a uh, private phone call. We knew about the phone call with Trump to talk about the, the uh, virus the other day. And Sanders, of course, has been talking about health care, that this is an example, he says, of what happens when people are vulnerable in terms of health care. But you're not hearing much about anything right now besides the, besides the coronavirus. So there isn't... It's hard to campaign in a situation like this, right? I mean, it's unprecedented, but what do you do? You don't want to stick your neck out by trying to get attention away from the virus. You want to talk about the virus a little bit. And under the circumstances right now, I suppose Biden is in a better position if he doesn't do very much other than trying to act like a statesman. Right. I mean, he did say he would wear a mask. Yeah, sure. Well, yes. Um, oddly enough, of course, the president, who endorsed wearing a mask in a nanosecond afterwards, said, but not for me, because it won't look good in front of kings and queens and other dignitaries. Um, but here is, the, here is the implication here that could be important and that they mention, and that you're beginning, maybe you can see a little bit today when we get some sense of what happened in the Wisconsin primary today. And that's this. What what. These two, James Bisbee and Dan Honig, who did the study, say, look, here is what you have to start thinking about. How is anxiety going to affect the elections down the road between now the, uh, and voting be down the road between now and November? Um, do you, you know, are there certain times, certain dates when there would be more anxiety? And they also say that this is going to introduce if not a different kind of thing, more of a sort of, um, more of a sort of way of influencing people. That you know, you can have hackers, you could have outside sources trying to influence the election, and do it simply by raising these kinds of fear issues. So 
they're not, you know, they're careful not to say what's going to happen. But I think that this issue of how anxiety, extreme anxiety, affects people's votes down the road is, is an interesting one. Wisconsin today, the court wouldn't let them postpone the election. And so you have people um, waiting in line to vote. And the number of precincts are very small because the poll watchers didn't vote and they had to use the National Guard. I don't know what the effect is going to be on the Wisconsin primary today, but it's pretty clear that the Republicans in the legislature think that it's going to favor them, and the Democrats wanted the election postponed. So all of this kind of stuff is going to be, is going to be coming up. There is nothing right now that's definitely certain about this coming election, uh, other than the fact that you're pretty sure who the two main presidential candidates are. That was a conversation we had yesterday afternoon with our contributing political analyst, um, Neil Milner, uh, on a regular segment that we call The Long View. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the private bank of Bank of Hawaii, whose relationship managers are committed to providing tailored financial solutions and a personalized banking experience. Learn more at boh.com slash the private bank. As the world changes in unprecedented ways, we at HPR would like to extend a special thanks to the businesses and community organizations who continue to make our work possible. Through their support, we're able to provide you with news and information you can trust and a musical oasis when you need it. Mahalo to all of HPR's underwriters who help us to pursue our mission every day. Hawaii is lagging behind in the 2020 census count, and that's cause for concern in our community because it is tied to key federal programs. Now, the deadline has been pushed off until August as there are concerns about census takers in the field during this health crisis. Michael Kane is the CEO of the Hawaii Community um, Foundation. He stresses why it has never been more important to be counted as our economic need has never been greater. If you thought it was bad before, think again. For every person that's counted, it's like writing the state of Hawaii a $2,800 check. And, you know, a house for the four, that's that's over $10,000. And so, you know, it's big money. And you multiply that by 10, and, 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 and you got your, your, your census number, your census contribution. So we're in a, this is super important work that's being done. And, you know, we're going to have to find a way to communicate with what's happening with COVID, the need for people to 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 fill out this information and to have a sense of urgency to do it. We're up to about 37% right now, and the U.S. rate is at 44.5. So give us the breakdown. How is it on the neighbor islands? Neighbor islands, Maui County is at 30%. Kauai County is at 27%, and Hawaii County is at 21%. They've traditionally trended slower, um, and because of the rural communities, it tends to be a little bit more difficult. And so I think some of the work that's being done with nonprofits to try to get into households is, is where we're going to have to try to drive that count up. They haven't received some information that Oahu County has received, but, you know, it shouldn't stop them from, from getting the message of getting online. It's very simple, and, and we're going to have to just work hard. There's been an extension to the timeline to leave August, so there's a bit more time for people to fill out the, the census information than previously. But the need is probably greater now, just given the overlay of this COVID-19. It is. Uh, we track the vulnerable community very closely at the White Community Foundation, and we try to drive our resources towards those inequities. What we're seeing now uh, with COVID is an exacerbation of that community. They're being hurt more, and it's becoming a much larger population. And so 
We also track what's called the ALICE families, which are those families, it's an acronym for Asset Limited Income Constrained but Employed. That number is going up substantially as well. And now there are so many that are not employed. Yeah. And, and you know, probably, and they're, and they're taking services that traditionally they wouldn't. And so you're having organizations like the Feed Bank servicing families that were you know, in some cases considered middle income. People are probably at home and they've just been consumed by the headlines and, and the growing numbers, you know, across the world. The The Census Bureau sent out, uh, you know, the information uh, a week or two ago, and so folks should have this in hand if they haven't jumped online to be counted. They really ought to do it now. Absolutely. Every individual that fills out this application represents a $2,800 check coming to Hawaii. And so it's, it's, it's big money. The money that doesn't come, in most cases, is going to have to be backfilled by state resources, which then takes away from our ability to, to do other things with, those, with that funding. So it really puts a tremendous pressure on, on government when you don't get the federal resources that you deserve, when it's really uh, incumbent on us as constituents to, to really do our part and fill out this, this census report. Now, I know when this was launched, uh, there was a big push uh, to get folks who were Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islanders to check that box, and there's been a big campaign uh, to get the word out in a lot of these different Pacific Islander communities. Yeah, it has. I think it's actually been a pretty effective uh, targeted campaign. It's been driven out of the federal office with some local contractors here that I think have been very effective. I hope the numbers will will show that effectiveness, but it's yet to be seen. You know, hopefully we're going to exceed people's expectations. And as I've mentioned, we have a bit more time, so we're going to have to focus and get, get those numbers up. Native Hawaiian community, Polynesian community, Asian Americans are, 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 are tend to be, you know, undercounted communities. Is there a plan to keep running the TV commercials or the radio commercials that you're doing? Yeah, we're in the process of trying to reevaluate our plan. A lot of our planning based on the RFP that was issued by the state, required gatherings that tried to create energy and get out there and and get people to fill out the the census form. That's going to have to pivot. It's going to have to be uh, a family-to-family type of social media and up on paid media. I know that the listener population that, that you serve is a really civically engaged community, and so we're confident that that community is going to do their part but it's what they can do beyond their families and their immediate households that is going to make a difference. And just reaching out through email or through their social media sources to get people beyond their households to do that, to get them to understand how important it is. And I think during a time like this where we're seeing, you know, our state deal with a major disaster uh, pandemic that is having far-reaching economic impacts on our community, that that should resonate as a message to them. And so hopefully people will pick up that responsibility and and, and share in the, the kuleana that we all have to try to get everybody to fill out this board. So get busy on the coconut wireless. That's exactly right. You know, every wireless that you can get a hold of. And again, just recognizing the financial impact that it has on our state for a 10-year period. I think, too, as people start to see so many in our community filing for unemployment and so many in our community, you know, uh, lining up at the food bank. It really is, the need is just, it's greater than it ever was. It is, but it also makes you realize a couple of things. One is you realize how fragile our economic construct really is in Hawaii. And so, you know, we have to remember that as we come out of this, that we don't want this again. So we really got to think hard about what that future construct is going to be that we have a much more resilient community. Going into COVID, just prior to COVID, one out of every two families was one paycheck away from some kind of financial catastrophic position. And that's 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 a very fragile community that's not acceptable. And so we're seeing some of that fragility come out in our, in our work right now. It's unfortunate. But I think as we do come out, hopefully we're going to be much more emboldened to take the steps we need to to create a much more robust economy that's resilient to this type of disaster going forward. Now, when the Hawaii Community Foundation came out with their change document, you know, like what what is it going to take in order to keep our people here? Do you fear that we're going to lose our families because of this downturn? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those who are capable of moving to 
areas where cost of living is lower and incomes are higher is going to be a natural draw for, for people like that. I think, again, prior to COVID hitting us, I think the legislature was starting to appropriately take some pretty robust and bold steps in trying to bring down the cost of living for middle middle and lower income families. There was a package of bills that both the House, Senate, and Governor were signed on to that addressed the housing affordability issue uh, with very robust investments into infrastructure that mandated affordable returns. They were they were pushing hard on a bill that would provide a hundred percent child care and early learning opportunities for every child who needed it in the state of Hawaii within a 10-year period, which with milestones, you know, every two and a half years to check and meet certain deliverables. And then there was a, some, an income inequality package of bills that made income to earn tax credits permanent and raised the minimum wage modestly over a three-year period. And that would have made a huge difference. And I hope when the legislature reconvenes that they, they realize that those uh, those amendments to our to our laws are going to be more needed then than at any time. So there's there's a recognition I think by the legislature that some action is needed. I hope and, uh, that they're going to they're going to be able to maintain uh, those efforts. And will your messaging be any different before the deadline in uh, August? Just a higher sense of urgency. And that was Mike Kane, CEO of the Hawaii Community Foundation, stressing the need for Hawaii residents to fill out the 2020 census online. The state's response rate is lagging behind the national figures, and he urges families who are at home to get on the computer, take the time out, and fill out the census form now. That is a wrap for today. Up tomorrow, we plan to talk to Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell about the city challenges during these ever-changing COVID times. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. And hey, email works too. Talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online. Look under HPR News and Talk for The Conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.